Now basically manual occlusion cuts off blood supply to the uterus, so that's going to stop bleeding, you know. So that is probably uh, something that you should apply early in someone who's having serious bleeding. Yeah, I mean the, the bush midwives from Wankajunka knew that. Yep. That's, uh, where is, that's it, where the, is Wankajunka? Oh, uh, southeast of Fitzroy Crossing. Yep. Welcome to episode 18 of the Opsangani Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back. Um, this week I'm joined by Graham again. I've cornered him in the corridor and said, do you want to come and do another recording? Uh, and the topic for this week is we're going to discuss the management of the woman for whom blood is not an option. Uh, thanks for coming on, Graham. Oh, thanks for inviting me again. All right. Now, um, so the first thing I'm going to say is uh, that we've chosen the name Management of the Woman for Whom Blood is Not an Option because we're not talking about just Jehovah's Witness patients. We're talking about um, anyone for whom you can't transfuse who's having a hemorrhage. Yes. For, um, for example, women with rare blood types. That's right. Or and, uh, antibodies that uh, are incompatible with uh, your blood stock. That's right. Or if you're unlucky enough to be in a situation where you are in a remote location. Yes. Uh, where you don't actually have any blood available. So that's that can be applicable in, you know, people might be thinking, well, you know, if you go and work uh, in a developing country. Um, but that could happen in a remote location in, um, in Australia as well. Exactly. Yeah, There's been caught out. more than one uh, PPH at Wankajunka community yep. in the past 20 years. So all of these, so all of the things we're discussing now are relevant for any of these women. Um, so basically you're, you're in a, a tricky situation and you, don't, you can't fall back on uh, transfusion. What are you going to do? Uh, so I've got an uh, interesting little case example on the blog site, which you can read if you want. I'm not going to read through it here because um, I think that uh, it's, it's probably a bit of a waste of our time. But um, it's just a, a little um, hypothetical example that I put into sort of segue into the topic. So I'm going to try and do this in a temporal order of this discussion. So Graham, first of all, we're going to talk about the sort of antenatal issues. Um, so first of all, you know, we've already mentioned the, the sort of woman who might, this might be applicable to. Um, so focusing on people or women who refuse transfusion, of which uh, most of them are Jehovah's Witnesses, but uh, not everyone. What are the e ethical and legal considerations uh, that you... So, um, I mean, the validity of their decision is important. Yep. That is, uh, do they understand the information as presented? And that can be quite complex because uh, individual women have uh, individual belief systems and sometimes uh, you actually need to outline exactly which products... Yep, actually I might interrupt you there. Uh, so, sorry to be uh, hmm. uh, a bit proactive. Okay. But, well, I'm actually going to go through that in a bit more detail in a second. So... Um, it's probably because I phrased my question wrong. Oh, right. uh, apologies. <laughs> um, so I guess the things I was going to, the main thing I was going to touch on uh, were that um, as long as they're of sound mind, yes, um, then you have to abide by their wishes. Yeah. Yep. Um, if you, uh, what about if you feel uncomfortable? It's very uncomfortable for for those of us caring for women like this. It can if, be uh, because we um, come from a different paradigm. Yeah. I think that's the allowed, hard thing. Are we allowed to just throw our hands in the air and? Uh, and say I'm not going to look after them. I don't think that's uh, a professional approach. No, I think if 
if you can safely hand over their care to someone else who is capable of uh, looking after them, then you then that is fine. Yeah. But if, for example, say um, you're the only person there who's capable of looking after them, you have an ethical obligation to a look after them and b um, uh, you know follow their wishes and and not transfuse them with blood products if that is their um, you know predetermined um, beliefs and that's that's basically it. You have to you just have to make the best of it. I mean, they are those uh, ethical principles of autonomy, <coughs> beneficence, non-maleficence. Yep. That's exactly right. And justice. Okay, so um, the first thing, so in the antenatal period, um, oh, I guess the key is sort of identifying early that um, blood is not an option for women. Um, so hopefully that will occur early on in the antenatal period. That's the one thing I wanted to emphasise in this podcast is um, uh, it's called hematinic optimization. But basically, you know, as soon as you realise that they um, they're not going to accept a transfusion. You want to have as much of a buffer of safety as you can to avoid, um, you know, life-threatening anemia. And the best way to do that is to make sure they have got plenty of red cells circulating in their body. So this is like a really key concept, I reckon, uh, and sometimes done badly. Uh, people seem to focus on uh, more on the um, discussion and the signing the bits of paper and consents and things, whereas I think what you should really be doing is trying as hard as possible to make sure they've got plenty of red cells and they're not iron deficient and anemic. Yes. Uh, so having said that, uh, you want to be relatively aggressive in making sure that they um, have good red cells and iron stores at the time of delivery. Um, and that, if that means um, you know changing from oral iron to intravenous iron earlier than you wouldn't feel comfortable with in other patients, that so be it. Because I think the, the key here is that if you have, um, I always like to say, uh, I use this when I'm discussing it with a registrar or someone, if you have a hemoglobin 135 and you lose two thirds of your blood volume, you might end up with a hemoglobin 50, and you'll survive that. Mm. But if you start off with a hemoglobin 85, and you use two thirds of blood volume, you might end up with a hemoglobin 25, 30, and that might kill you. You might struggle. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, okay, so I think we've covered that. So I, I think anyone with a ferritin less than 30 should be given iron, either, either uh, orally or even intravenously uh, early on. Um, keeping in mind, the first trimester, I don't think you're allowed to give intravenous iron, but um, all right, so the other thing that they, and so um, this brings up, um, reminds me to bring up an um, important um, article which I think everyone who is interested in this topic should read. Really great review article written in the Australian New Zealand Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, or ENSJOG, um, in 2016, uh, caring for the pregnant woman for whom transfusion is not an option. This is, this is it outlines just about everything we're going to talk about, and I really recommend everyone read that um, if you look after um, obstetric patients because uh, basically it goes through everything there. It's, it's great for people who are studying for their exams as well. Um, so one of the other important things that you need to d decide upon or discuss in the antenatal period is the place and mode of delivery. Why is that important, Graham? So I have heard someone say to me, well, don't, you don't, you know, yeah, uh, these patients don't want a transfusion, uh, so their, their treatment in the, in the big hospital and the little hospital is going to be the same. What's, yeah, well what, that, why does it matter? That is maybe unlike, maybe uh, uh, incorrect. The reason for that is uh, there are other resources other than um, stocks of uh, packed red blood cells, FFP or platelets, that may um, be acceptable to the patient and uh, important in, in the situation where um, transfusion is not an option. For example, intraoperative cell salvage. Uh, yep. For example, other um, 
plasma drive products. Yep. Actually, so the things that I think of is uh, uh, so when someone starts bleeding, is there some theatre staff immediately available? So, so some smaller hospitals, everyone has to drive in and it takes about an hour, you know, 30 to 60 minutes before everyone gets to theatre. So that's obviously a delay. Uh, and someone whose blood's not an option, that extra 30 to 60 minutes could be the difference between serious morbidity and, and mortality. Um, so the big, the big places have um, usually have on-site 24-7 theatre staff. Uh, as Graham mentioned, self-salvage. Yeah, the big hospitals have that. They also have um, often have things like radiology where they can embolise uh, bleeding, uh, ICU. They might have more experienced surgeons and um, other people to help sort of get control of bleeding quicker. So those things, all those things are important. And also there are some blood products which uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. So clotting factors and things which mm. uh, many people will accept, and these may be available in the big hospitals, but not not so in smaller hospitals. So I think it is key when uh, talking to someone who says uh, they're not you know, they, they won't accept blood products to explain to them what you do and don't have in your hospital, especially if you're a smaller centre, and make sure they're aware that they, for example, you don't have cell service, you don't have people on site after hours, and all of these things might be uh, less than ideal if they have an unexpected hemorrhage after hours. Yeah, but even before <coughs> that, I think um, obstetrics is uh, an area where risk is not always um, predictable. And so it's really important that we concentrate on the basics when caring for a patient who is uh, bleeding, who's pregnant or who's just delivered and is bleeding. And I think the, the, the concept of the, the empty contracted uterus doesn't bleed um, is, uh, is essential that the midwifery and obstetric staff you work with and you yourself and your uh, team uh, attend to the basics well to prevent blood loss in the post, post or in the pregnant patient or the postpartum patient. Okay, so and the other thing which most people do sort of flick up on the radar, so most people think of uh, what should we talk about or what we need to cover in the antenatal period is a discussion about what they will and won't have. That's usually high on everyone's um, list of to-do things. So this is something that in my opinion is most of the time done, but without trying to be too derogatory, most of the time isn't done very well. Mm. And I think part of the problem is that often the patients don't know what they're allowed and what they're not allowed and the doctor who sits down with them to discuss it with them doesn't either. Mm. So I think uh, that's why I think it's really important for, the, for, um, for all of us to learn what um, the, so this is a Jehovah's Witnesses in, uh, specifically, what their um, church structure, uh, what their stance is, so you can ex help explain it to them, because they um, often don't understand the ins and outs of some of these fractions. I thought you were looking at me to explain it to them. No, but, uh, no, sorry. I'm just looking at you to, to um, you know, try and remind myself what I was going to say. So, so I have I have educated myself on this. So there is um, so quite a really good diagram, which I obviously is, doesn't come across in an audio podcast. But have a look on the website. I'll put a picture of it there. So there are the strict sort of um, teaching by the by the Jehovah's Witness Church, if that's the right term, is um, that they uh, shouldn't accept whole blood or the four major components of whole blood, which are red cells, plasma, platelets, and uh, white cells. Mm -hmm. So not sure the white cells are relevant in major hemorrhage, but so those are all the main things that are sort of strictly forbidden, or verboten, um, if you're German. I don't know why I said that, but it makes it sound good. Good. <laughs> good, uh, good Deutsch. And everything underneath that is called a fraction, and that is actually um, up to the personal... 
uh, individual to decide. And so really important things to discuss in the, con in the, um, in the, in the obstetric patient is um, um, components that may be useful for restoring the clotting or coagulation system um, back to normal. So specifically cryoprecipitate and fibrinogen concentrate yeah. are allowed if, um, if the individual so chooses. So are things like um, biostate, which is factor eight in, in von Willebrand's factor. So is prothrombinex, which is um, the, the four clotting factors used uh, to reverse warfarin. Uh, so all of those things um, can be used to restore many of the aspects of hemostasis, which can sometimes go astray in a major hemorrhage when you get hemodilution and consumption. Mm. Albumin? Albumin, yep. So that might be useful for um, volume replacement as well. So all of those things are really important. And then, of course, there's the other aspect that um, needs to be talked about, which is um, um, the use of their own patient's own blood. Mm. So that includes um, cell salvage or use of autologous blood. Most, most uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will accept that if you explain to them what's involved, and um, especially if you're willing to set up a... Um, uh, um, a giving set with some saline connecting the um, cell salvage machine to their um, arm, so that there's sort of, you know uh, always some sort of continuity or some circuit um, connecting the patient to the suction and the collection device. Um, and some patients will also accept autologous um, stored blood. Uh, what's the word? Not st stored blood. That's un uh, not accepted. But um, acute normal volumic hemodilution, where you take some blood off the patient in a bag. Um, acutely prior to major surgery and then tip it back into them after the surgery is finished. Um, I know some colleagues who do that for cardiac surgery but yes. um, I've never done it myself. But that, that is a way of actually getting um, some fresh cells and some platelets and clotting factors. Oh, and you might N consider equals, that N equals one experience of doing yeah. it in cardiac. Yeah. Um, I think the cardiac guys like that because it stops the platelets from getting bashed up mm. by the cardiopulmonary bypass machine. But that's certainly something you could consider in a patient prior to major operation like a percreter or something I suppose uh, in a JW. Right, so that's taken us longer than I thought. But yeah, my, in my experience, explaining that clotting factor, um, that the clotting factors in the um, cryoprecipitate and fibrinogen concentrate are allowed is really useful because that is the thing you might be able to save them. You know, if someone gets severely anemic, you can probably keep them alive with fancy things which we'll talk about later like hyperbaric oxygen and things like that. But um, if you can't actually stop the bleeding, which you, where you're, you need to restore hemostasis, then you're in a real world of, world of pain. Um, and important, this is another important point, which I sometimes use to explain it, is that most Jehovah's Witnesses who are born with congenital clotting deficiencies like haemophilia do accept, not all of them, but most of them do ex actually accept clotting factors. Uh, and that is allowed by their church as well. So that you know, that's, that help, is helpful in explaining it to a lay person. Some of them are recombinant, though. <coughs> they? I mean, that's Some of them, but not all of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Okay, so shall we move on to um, intrapartum management? Yes. Yep. Um, so the key here, really, um, we've talked about all the sort of getting ready for, for things to happen, but then you know, hopefully you'll avoid a hemorrhage, but the key to intrapartum management of a Jehovah's Witness is rapid control of hemorrhage. Mm. So basically you've just got to obtain hemostasis as rapidly as possible and early definitive management of hemorrhage if it occurs. So sort of things I like to think about. Uh, uh, feel free to butt in uh, when you like, Grant, because I, mean, I feel like I'm I mean, talking I mean, a lot. I mean, <laughs> I mean, a close eye on uterine tone. Yep. And uh, 
its, uh, place, its um, position, that it's contracted down, early um, hemostasis for any perineal tears yep. or other um, birth canal trauma, and uh, make sure that the placenta is intact or fully removed. Yeah, is that exactly right. So well, I think there's a key point you've made there is about a uterine tone. So really, I mean... In the ideal world, we have a we'd have a close eye on urine tone in every woman who delivers. But mm. this is, I think, it's worth emphasising because sometimes you know we sort of move through the oxytocin drugs in a slow manner. It's worth emphasising, and everyone keeping in the back of their mind. And this woman, we've got to be jumping all over it. So at any sign of um, atony, we move down the hierarchy of drugs and just uh, or, or techniques and management. Um, options very very quickly mm. don't um, muck around and you know don't wait until i've actually bled three liters before you start giving carboprost i mean basically you just want to move, move through everything really quickly and get that tone super tight super fast mm. um, because you haven't got room to move and i have been seen um you know cases of the women uh, jehovah's witness patients who that wasn't done and they've ended up very anemic um and done okay uh, yes nothing bad's happened to them but they've been you know has a close it's been a close call um, and you know, and, and those other basic things keep them warm. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> so they do clot. So I think a key point here is uh, early management, early definitive management. That includes getting experienced senior people involved straight away. Everyone being, you know, having it on their radar that um, as soon as this person delivers, we're going to make sure they don't bleed. If uh, there's some evidence even for prophylactic use of tranexamic acid. It's, Quite a good meta-analysis from um, 2017 of uh, like four or five thousand patients in a, in a sort of meta-analysis uh, that prophylactic tranexamic acid works prior to cesareans or um, vaginal deliveries, and obviously the woman's study is pretty supportive of um, that it decreases bleeding if, if uh, postpartum hemorrhage occurs. So, so would you target that to uh, all women at risk of postpartum hemorrhage from those big risk groups, as I well as Jehovah's Witnesses or other I give patients? prophylactic tranexamic acid to women with accreta or um, percreta surgery, I give it to them before their surgery starts. Yes. Yep. Um, so early access to theatre. Now, I've been involved in a few cases over the years, not obstetric, but there's a Jehovah's Witness woman who's um, un undergoing a, some bleeding post and sort of elective surgical procedure. And I had to really get quite grumpy with the theatre coordinator who was saying, oh, it can follow the tendon repair sort of, sort of thing. Mm. And I said, no, nah, this is not appropriate. You know, I had to really... Um, you want to advocate for your patient here, so time is money. Uh, time is life, you know. Yes. And this patient, any any bleeding is is life threatening bleeding in a Jehovah's Witness. So don't, you need to rally resources, call people, and open another theatre to get on with it. Um, so I mentioned senior and experienced staff. I think that's really really key. So the other thing is, so I mean, I mean, uh, you know, we talk about trying lots of things before we do a hysterectomy uh, in a lot of women, but I think hysterectomy needs to come up the list of uh, definitive procedures in, in a woman who, in whom, you know, blood is not an option because that might be the, the, the definitive thing to stop the bleeding mm. and you want to do it before they're um, about to die, if that makes sense. Is that a, is that a thought that's shared by our I think um, that obstetric is, gynecology? No, it is discussed in that paper I colleagues. mentioned before and uh, it is mentioned in most guidelines that, you know, think about doing a hysterectomy because that might be the life-saving intervention. Um, the other thing, I, I'm a bit of an enthusiast, manual aortic occlusion. I'm a, you know, basically, manual aortic occlusion cuts off blood supply to the uterus, so that's going to stop bleeding. You know, So that is probably a, 
something that you should apply early in someone who's having serious bleeding. Yeah, I mean, the, the bush midwives from Wankajunka knew that. Yep. That's, uh, where is, that's where is Wankajunga? Oh, uh, southeast of Fitzroy Crossing. Yep. So certainly in the, um, the, the blog I did on the aortic occlusion with um, the obstetrician from Sweden, you know, he, most of his experience was in Africa. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure that many of his patients didn't have access to blood products. So this was a you know, classic sort of, you know, life-saving um, technical procedure in someone for whom blood's not an option. I did uh, recently see... Uh, a report out of Rwanda, which I believe is quite a small country in Africa, where they use uh, drones now to deliver blood products. Fascinating. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, yeah very interesting. I mm. think, uh, and I think the interesting part about that is because uh, Rwanda is a very hilly, mountainous country. And, so and when it rains, the roads get boggy. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about, now I'm not going to go into this in a lot of detail because I want to actually do a um, separate podcast on this, but it's cell salvage. So this can be life-saving. Uh, if you do self-salvage properly, you can collect just about all the blood that, uh, that um, comes out of a woman if you really know how to do it. Um, so interestingly, the, one of the first people to ever use self-salvage was a, a London obstetrician, James Blundell, back in the early 1800s. And he actually reinfused vaginal blood from a uh, woman who um, uh, suffered a massive postpartum hemorrhage. So this has been done before so a lot of people say you know I think it's quite accepted now people understand it's using self salvage during a cesarean or a laparotomy for postpartum hemorrhage but what about these women who have um, mm. massive vaginal bleeding, bleeding. bleeding so yeah. I, I have corresponded quite a lot with Catherine Ralph and Anistis from Truro and she's done a lot of work on this they did a really interesting study they got 50 women who had vaginal bleeding and they collected it uh, and washed it and analyzed it and showed that it did have some bacterial contamination, but probably the same amount that you get when you collect blood during a caesarean. And um, so they published that paper. And so certainly in a, in a, in a Jehovah's Witness who's, who's having a major hemorrhage, you should definitely collect the, cell, mm. uh, the vaginal blood. Mm. And the technique they use, and I'll put a, a picture and a link on the, on the web page, is basically they use the drapes. So most people know the lithotomy drapes that you hang over the woman's legs. It's got a big pouch that sort of hangs yeah, under the perineum. Pouch, yep. Plastic pouch on the perineum. Yep. So you fill that pouch up with a couple of hundred mils of anticoagulant, mm -hmm. you and uh, you stick the um, the cell salvage sucker in there as well. So any blood coming out of the vagina, you can collect with the sucker, or if it ends up in the pouch, you can collect it from the pouch. Yep. And um, it's very, very effective. Um, it allows you to, um, you know, allows the surgeons to um, access the um, vagina and the cervix and suture any any um, you know tears, put in back rib balloons, that sort of thing. But it also allows you to collect all the blood that comes out. And definitely, if you wash that and uh, reinfuse it, yeah, that could be life-saving mm. if someone becomes severely anemic. So that's something you should keep in the back of your mind. And, and people should probably have thought about that beforehand so they know how to set it up in a hurry. It's, it's not that complicated. It's basically the normal cell salvage um, equipment yep. plus the pouch, yes. uh, plus the, the, uh, some, some anticoagulant in the pouch. Yep. Yep. Um, and then interestingly, I did a little quick uh, literature search. There's a paper just published very recently in the last few months um, from Pittsburgh, where they've actually um, reinfused vaginal blood into 10 women, um, which is a sort of like a um, pilot study. Um, it's like a case series, I guess, and it showed no, uh, I'll refer you to read that as well, didn't show any serious effects. Obviously, 10 is not a very big number and you can't make too many con conclusions, but it certainly um, is some interesting data. Mm. Uh, and interesting, mo you know, most of those women weren't Jehovah's Witnesses, but they just... Um, I think that the evidence is that it's uh, a 
a, a worthwhile thing to do. I presume they had um, consent from the woman. All right. In the interest of time, we better move on. Any other, any, any other comments about intrapartum management? I think we've covered all the things you should do. Um, all the usual things, but just do them on steroids. Do it quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, keep moving. Yeah. You know. And collect all the red stuff that comes out of a woman because yeah. uh, you want to have the ability to put it back in. If you can. Um, okay. So postpartum management. You've got a woman who unfortunately uh, blood's not an option and now she is severely anemic. Bleeding stopped, but she's severely anemic. What, what are the sort of things you can do? This is sort of the ICU care yeah, of them, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so the important thing is oxygen delivery to the tissues. Yep. Uh, so you can give them uh, extra oxygen. Yep. Uh, I think you mentioned hyperbaric oxygen even in uh, severe anemia. Yep. So I'll pull out some of those studies out. I remember a few years ago when I did a talk on this, I looked it up. There's some case series from hyperbaric unit in California, and there's some interesting cases written up from um, south of England where women have had extremely low hemoglobins, I think in the teens or the 20s, um, treated with hyperbaric oxygen, intermittent hyperbaric oxygen very effectively, uh, whilst waiting for um, intravenous iron and EPO to, to kick in. Yes, so uh, that's probably the next thing that can be done, yeah. uh, is uh, provide the uh, nutrients and the um, physiological or pharmacological um, circumstance whereby uh, Pack cells are produced as soon as possible, so yep. intravenous iron and or erythropoietin. Yep. And uh, B12 and folate yes. as well. Most yep. most pregnant women have enough of that, but obviously you should be checking that and, and supplementing that as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't want any more bleeding, so obviously checking coags and if you can correct clotting factor deficiencies. Yep. I think that would be um, a, a case where I would give clotting factors even though the patient wasn't bleeding? Yeah, you want to make sure that they're not going to start bleeding again because they're right on the edge, aren't they? Yeah. And actually, I didn't write this down before we started the talk, but this is really important. So one of the most common causes of anemia in ICU or an HDU ICU setting is, is iatrogenic, mm. taking blood off the patient all the time to check everything. So stop checking their haemoglobin. Do, do, do one blood test a day because mm. basically every time their, their poor old bone marrow churns out a few red cells, we suck it out of the outline, send it off to the lab. Crazy. Um, how are they ever going to get better? So important concept is uh, what, uh, sort of a, what sort of level of uh, anemia do patients fall off the off the uh, uh, supply demand yeah. uh, equilibrium? And I w uh, listened to a really interesting talk by an intensivist anesthetist from uh, New York who looks after a lot of um, patients, uh, Ari Shanda, and he, he, in his experience um, over many years looking after many of these patients is that it's around 30 to 40 grams per litre is where um, healthy people, um, where the supply and demand curves sort of intersect and things go bad. Mm -hmm. And so at, that's about the point where paralysis and ventilation yes. is useful. And, the, and there's two advantages from that. One is it decreases oxygen demand a lot. Yes. So the, so the, ma the main um, oxygen demand is the respiratory muscles. Um, and the skeletal muscles, so they no longer required. And obviously the ability to give more oxygen or dissolve more oxygen um, with higher FiO2s and um, supporting the circulation is, e is easy when someone is ventilated. So that's usually what they do. Uh, and it's usually around 30 to, you know, 30 to 40, but it varies. And certainly I look after patients who have been walking around, um, you know, going to the cafe and mm. doing, feel, telling me that they feel like shit, but doing all right, you know, Still alive in the hemoglobin in the thirties. Yes. One woman walked into to into the hospital um, saying I'm feeling under the weather and 
had a blood test and went off to the cafe waiting for results, came back. They, they did another blood test to check because it was obviously wrong, but it wasn't. Yeah, the hemoglobin was about 33, I think. <laughs> I mean, and, and erythrocytes are important for blood clot as well, so there is a point where um, it does impact upon yep. clotting. Um, so one other thing that we haven't mentioned, so polymerized hemoglobin. So this is something that's not licensed for use in most developed countries except South Africa. Um, so there's, there's, quite a, there's a few of them now. I'm not up right. to speed, completely up to speed with them. But there's one called Hemapure. Um, so they've been trying, so many companies have been trying for many years to try and make um, red cell replacements. And uh, this basically is a, putting polymers of um, hemoglobin together. And some of it's bovine, I think most of it's bovine hemoglobin, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I'm not an expert in this, but um, Hemapure, I think, is bo polymerized bovine hemoglobin. And you can obtain that and use it for, um, uh, what's the word, um, on a compassionate basis. And there was a case uh, of a Victorian woman who was a Jehovah's Witness who was a trauma victim, hmm. <coughs> pardon me, where they contacted the manufacturer of Hemapure, which is made in uh, Massachusetts, and uh, had some flown over and used it in their ICU in Melbourne. Um, uh, and that uh, apparently was very um, useful and it did help sort of bridge her across that time period until she could replace us, her own haemoglobin. So the the main downside to it and the reason why it hasn't been licensed for widespread use in the world is that haemoglobin uh, is a very good nitric oxide um, binder, scavenger. or scavenger, sorry, and so it causes a lot of um, vasoconstriction. Yes. And so you can get problems with hypertension, vasoconstriction in the lungs and heart, and um, you have to infuse it really slowly. And so interestingly, um, just after this case, one, the, one of the registrars who was involved in that case over in Melbourne was actually working for us here in WA in our department, and I quizzed him about it. And he said, yeah, they ran it in very, very slowly. And they actually ran um, some vasodilators at the same time so, they could, so the patient could tolerate it. So it's not, a, not an amazingly uh, well-tolerated um, treatment, but she was pretty anemic. I think her hemoglobin was in the 20s. So that is possible, and you could certainly obtain some some for compassionate use. You know, I guess with international flights and things nowadays, you can get it pretty quick. Mm. Um, I wouldn't know how to do it, but I'm sure it'd be pretty, um, there'd be some process in place. Um, so I think that's the main the main thing we've uh, uh, topics uh, we've covered all the main points. Um, I'm just going to throw out there a couple of other interesting scenarios, but I'm, we're not going to discuss them because we're. I think we should stop now. We've been going for 30 minutes. What about, um, so most Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, won't accept platelets. Um, so this would be a tricky one. You should probably think about it. What about the Jehovah's Witness who presents with uh, severe thrombocytopenia? Maybe, let's say, from HELP syndrome, mm. platelets of 10, or I guess any other thrombocytopenia as well. You know, what are you going to do if they bleed? Have a think about that. I know what I'd do. Should I tell you? <laughs> well, I know, we know that... Um, because I'm interested in rodent, we know that, um, for example, clot strength, which is one of the functions of platelets, but not the only one, uh, fibrinogen and platelets are sort of synergistic. So I would, um, if they were bleeding, give them lots of fibrinogen if they're, ex if they're accepting that, yeah. in the hope that maybe that, that is like a good second cousin. You want a good surgeon. Yep, that's exactly right. Dry surgery, just yeah. embolise them, just do all the things that you do to stop bleeding which are not related to blood products, you know? Packing, tying things off, embolising, yep. that sort of stuff. Um, Manual aortic compression. Yep. If they deliver vaginally. Yep. Mm. <clears throat> um, 
So I think we'll stop there. I've got a couple of other interesting scenarios that I might chuck on the blog site, uh, which are which are pretty complicated and might uh, give you pause for thought, including, you know, for example, patients with cancer who also have coronary stents, um, or on anti. Yeah, this I have come across this a few times. You know, patients who are booked for major surgery, but they have s some sort of you know they either have a history of thrombosis or a coronary artery disease, so they're on all these things to thin the blood. Oh dear, and they're, and they're Jehovah's, really, Jehovah's, Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses. So that makes things hard, you know. What mm. are you going to do? You know, um, uh, they, they're going to bleed because they're on all these things like lipidogrel or um, rivaroxaban, etc. Mm. Uh, yet uh, you don't want them to, to, to thrombose either. So that, uh, that is tricky. All right, thanks, Graham. Uh, another another really useful um, talk. Um, I've, give, I've got to give a small group discussion on this at a conference soon, so it's helpful to trigger my memory and get my thoughts rolling. Yeah, that's a very good uh, topic. Thanks, Roger. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandguinepretcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.